0: Mike Duffy called them the Boys in Short Pants. And they're both boys and girls, because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 90 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 91st episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. Why don't I ever get to say the opening? I mean, you, we absolutely, we could do that if you if you want. What episode number is this? This is episode 90, the 91st.
1: This is episode 90, the 91st episode. On there and go. Rainville, and this is...
0: The Boys in Short Pants. We never do that. No, you used to say Laurent Carbino. But you said this is, which is seems to be like introducing a, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. a sort of non-person noun rather than another person. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, been a couple weeks since the last one. Uh, things continue to happen in the world, as, uh, as is sometimes the case. Um, Parliament is returning this week in a sort of uh, singular capacity. The, the first really virtual sittings of Parliament will happen, I believe tomorrow uh which will be tuesday the 28th can i be a horrible Uh, pedant
1: parliament is not returning yeah the
0: house of commons will be sitting no not even
1: a committee of the Mm. house of commons but it's committee of the whole isn't it yeah i don't even know if it's that it's it's like a quasi committee of the whole hashtag but
0: committees committees have been sitting for several weeks
1: yes this is sort of like a new special committee I see. Um, yes, the Covey committee. Hashtag Kovi. Um, yes. Yeah. So we'll see it is, how it is that not Parliament. Like. The Senate is adjourned. There are no Senate committees. Um, there are a handful of parliamentary committees. I think.
0: By which you mean House of Commons
1: committees. What did I say? Parliament. Shit. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> owned. <laughs> a handful of House of Commons committee and Covey is being added as the the latest yes. version of this. So it's sort worth of worth reiterating. Go ahead. It's sort of in a uh, uh, Parliament of a Whole. Is that what it's called? Parliament of a Whole? Committee, committee of, the whole. of the Whole. That's that's what I'm looking for. Yes, which is when um, the, the, the
0: chamber basically sits as a committee, asks questions to ministers. When you've been watching, there have been actually a couple of QPs that have happened so far, but most of the questioning of ministers you may have seen on television, have you been watching it, has been um, Committee of the Whole. Which is people being like, Wow, they were so good today it's because it was more like committee than it was like keep. Yes, it's also sort of frankly the... when you when you don't have the whole apparatus of like the the clapping and the the hooting and, and hollering, then it, it just really becomes it just really takes a lot of the sting out of opposition questions when they, they deliver their zinger and then just like quietly sit back down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, yes, but like one of, so, is this is the
0: reason they have live studio audiences
1: and canned applause in, uh, in sitcoms. Like, one of the There's overriding reason. reasons they're able to do that, I mean, they're able to do Committee the Whole remotely, and one of the things that is nice about this um, is that it basically suspends a lot of the regular rules that would be awkward to do, and that frankly, um, Parliament isn't really prepared yet to do over teleconference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, basic rules like voice votes and standing five and standing to speak and a lot of these other parliamentary standing orders would have had to have been rewritten, like, an immense amount of the standing orders in order to do anything approximating a digital parliament. Yes, exactly. Not, not like, there's mention, a lot of the this- the philosophical yeah, of, questions of well, and like the does privilege present... apply?
0: Yes. Well, okay, yeah. The, the, is the mace present? I think is one we can dispense with. <laughs> but like, does privilege apply? I think is a more interesting one. Or uh, how does McFarland seems to apply? think it it does apply to to video proceedings? But like, I, I tend to think that's probably the case. But we'll see. Um, yeah, there's a lot of sort of this will really be the first time this has been tried because while there have been um, par or er, committee proceedings. Over the last couple of weeks, this will be the first real chamber proceeding that's happening that isn't actually in the chamber. So, uncharted waters there, and we'll see how it goes.
1: Is there anything else you really wanted to, to get out on that? Um, I mean, it, it's worth noting a lot of the debate that led up to this moment. Um, sure.
0: Yeah, a month ago it
1: was impossible. Yeah, I mean, we're we're a little late on this fiery debate that was occurring last week. basically it became a PR war between... Uh, I mean, largely the antagonists, uh, by view of the government, were the Conservative Party um, who were pushing for um, a higher degree of in-person sitting slash sittings, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think their opening hand or their opening negotiate, negotiating position um, was something like four in-person a week. And then that has been obviously substantially whittled down. Ultimately, the opposition, uh, I think it was, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the Bloc, the NDP, and the Greens um, all supported the government motion. I might be off on one of those. I can't remember. No, um, I think
0: that's correct. They all ended up agreeing to the current uh The current,
1: the quo. current state of affairs. But yeah. there was a lot of, like, dumb fear-mongering around this. Like, the Prime Minister himself led off one of his press conferences with, like, yes. on Monday, 338 MPs will fly in from all across the country and pack and the was, House of was, Commons. Yeah. And there was, and like, people. It 27 was never going to happen, right? Yeah. It was like, the, like he, no one is all there on Monday. And then you had journalists being like, ah, but the Conservatives might all storm the House and... Uh, force a confidence vote and it's like i mean that's not procedurally it would be, possible and also that's never going to happen it,
0: it, like just politically right like just it, like we're going into an election in this crisis because the conservatives did some like one weird trick nonsense like yeah. it would not go well for them right no. like politically like i think A lot of
1: people in the media really got spun on on that whole situation. So, I mean, ultimately, a lot of the debate, and I think this was sort of the broad cleavage, was like, if you think the government is going to do a fine job by itself, left to its own devices, you were probably on the side of, oh, no, it is too much of a risk to reopen parliament Yes, if you're having a chicken dinner with a glass of wine, say. (laughs) And if you were on the other side and you said, no, I like a government that is properly checked. Uh, I appreciate my government when it is challenged. I think it works better when it has to uh, be accountable to someone Then you were probably on the other side of the debate. Unless you're the Bloc Québécois who seems to be increasingly grifters who are happy to collect a paycheck without doing any of the actual work.
0: I have to hand it to the liberals for having two auxiliary parties in the House of Commons in the Green Party.
1: and well, Le Quoi. Let's, let's not be too generous. The Green Party are not truly a party.
0: Well, yes, fair enough. They are not officially recognized, but uh, yeah, no, pretty good on them. I, I appreciate how they're really talking about the important things like the environment. Oh, no, actually, they're just whining about <laughs>
1: conservatives being mean. Sorry, never mind. Increasingly, it strikes me that that is the only way the Greens can't get sort of any relevance or media attention is really just playing the conscience of parliament role. I think that's really the only thing that Elizabeth May manages to make headlines for on a regular basis. Coming from the
0: party that that used to be the conscience of parliament, like it it doesn't really get you anywhere. No. There's a reason most people ignore their consciences and just do the wrong thing. How's the
1: green party leadership race going these days? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Probably, probably not really going, I would suspect. Has not had a single headline in you know the past yeah. six well, months. I, and yet, any time the- Elizabeth May is like, "No, the liberal government must be left unchecked." That the conservatives are mean. That makes headlines across yes. like the Huffington Post first.
0: I do have to say that the conservatives have not. I, I mean, this is in a a not a new problem for them, but they they will get a good hand and they will play it really badly. Uh, or overplay it, usually, is the direction that goes, and I think that that applies here. Uh, I think they had a reasonable case to say, like, hey, look, you know, we're just being reasonable here, and we're, we're you know, they, they've made some early missteps, and we just want to make sure they're doing their job, but they kind of had to go, they had to go full Polyev on it, and uh, <laughs> I don't I don't think that necessarily worked out for them, right? Like, I think sometimes their their instincts on this stuff are, are genuinely quite bad, um, and as much as I, I, and like regular listeners of the show will know that I was a, a big, uh, pure poly of bull in terms of thinking he would do, uh, quite well in a leadership race. Would he run? And I continue to think that that's, that's the case, but I think increasingly his shtick is wearing thin with, uh, it doesn't work well in a crisis. I think the, the degree of, of, of pettiness that is really satisfying to supporters, uh, as a sort of token of disdain for the the sort of governing party and their, their whole you know cultural and ideological superstructure i think works really well when you know we're in a kind of normal politics situation but i do think it works genuinely quite poorly uh in this kind of situation i mean we'll see how it pans out for them in the medium to long term as usual i think they are concentrated on motivating the people who vote for them rather than trying to get you know, NDPers and Greens who will never vote for them to vote for them. So fair enough. Like, Pierre Polyev's job is not to make me happy. I'm never going to vote for him. Fair enough. But I, I don't know. I, I do think that they perhaps have leaned into their instincts. Is, in is that, that just way because perhaps- you are never going
1: to live in Ottawa, Carlton? But well, if you I mean, there did is that. in yes. Carlton, you might vote I for him. I
0: probably wouldn't vote for him there either, sadly. No, uh, I mean, li-
1: I mean, listen, the Conservative Party is naturally in a bit of an awkward spot here. Like, let- let's not forget who the leader of the party is, presently. Sure, is yeah, Andrew so Schiller. lame duck. Yeah. Um, very much the definition of a lame duck. Some comparisons have been made to Ron Ambrose and sort of are comparing and contrasting, but very distinctly different situation. There
0: is a, there is a difference between an interim leader and a lame duck leader, right? And yes. And once again, coming from the NDP, it's like when we had two years of Tom Mulcair, it was very difficult because he had no real reason to try and do a good job because he was going out the door anyway right like and and going out the door in a way that was fairly acrimonious and he clearly wasn't the best sport about it let's say
1: yeah and if not if i'm not mistaken read a situation at the time about exactly this topic comparing and contrasting andrew shears state of affairs with um tom Mulcair's or the tom Mulcair experience of the ndp and to a Mm -hmm. large extent i was an advocate of yes time to find a different interim leader um, for this exact reason That yeah. a lame duck leader Is substantially worse than a uh, than, an, than an Elected interim leader but that's Yeah not, well I mean the interim leader has an gone.
0: incentive to do a good job A lame duck Doesn't right Like They, they, they just don't in the same way yeah, it's, uh, yeah Particularly if you're leaving under a cloud Which I think in both Mulcair and Shear's cases
1: Is the case Yes, for different... Admittedly, for very, yeah, very reasons. Yeah, very different reasons, but, but,
0: like, still a cloud.
1: Yes. But yeah. Here
0: we are. There you are. I actually do have to say, uh, I, I genuinely think the NDP has played the last couple of weeks really well. Like, which is, you know, is nice. <laughs> it's nice to be able to say that. Uh, I think, like, a lot of the stuff on making the CERB more generous and all that has been... Fairly effective, and they've actually gotten credit, which is also not something that happens every day.
1: So I'm scoffing at this a little bit. Um, Fair enough. I mean, listen, every I mean, l- l- everyone bearing complains in mind, about the benefits the government has been rolling out. Every single stakeholder imaginable has put up their hand and yes. said, "The we need you to amend it. We need you to amend it." And it seems like the government has been reasonably responsive. And like I get parties trying to claim claim wins out of that, but. I'm not linking those. I mean, a lot of people will. The NDP certainly will. I'm not linking a ton of that. I would say directly there, to the work. I think of the a NDP. lot of it
0: is to stakeholders, right? It's people calling up the Department of Finance and and I said and saying, "Hey, this doesn't work for us at all." Yes. But at the same time, like it does help that this they hear this from the opposition too. Uh, especially in the limited accountability sessions that we've had so far, uh, have been kind of dominated by these issues. So. Yeah, they are hearing it from stakeholders, but they're also hearing it from voters and they're hearing it from political parties. And it's not to give anyone full credit for forgetting the government to change its mind on things, but I think it's a it's an example of you know, opposition having an impact on policy writing on the ground in a way that doesn't happen pretty often.
1: Yeah, I mean it seems like virtually everyone is on the same same song sheet here. Mm-hmm. In terms of I mean every party engages with stakeholders. And the stakeholders engage with uh, ministers' offices, their departments, parliamentary committees, etc. And if you tune into any one of these things, basically what you hear is the same. You hear various stakeholders talking to uh, legislators, policymakers, politicians, saying this support doesn't work for me because of X reason. And mm-hmm. there are no shortage of reasons based on the industry that you're in, the seasonality of that industry. Um, the conditions of students, the type of income you earn, like, take take your pick. Yeah. The way the, the government went about structuring this benefit was a fairly rigid manner, which has left a lot of people to fall through the cracks. And it yep. was done in a very quick manner, which has left the department basically scrambling to fill in details as they go. Yeah, um, which, like,
0: it, to some degree is fair, right? Like, I think... Given the circumstances, the speed at which things have rolled out has actually been quite impressive, uh, and it's certainly going to lead people to think, like, I'm not going to believe you in the future when you say this is too hard. <laughs> there, <laughs> that's that's hundred... your takeaway from this Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it's true, though. I think we've been told for a long time, oh, it's too hard for government to do things, and it turns out when push comes to shove, government actually can do things, you know, reasonably effectively and quickly, uh, so... I think that that is an important lesson, right? I think uh, a long time we've been stuck in the, the post-Reagan mentality of government is not the solution, government is the problem. But it turns out that uh, when millions of people lose their job at once, uh, government actually turns out to be the
1: solution. So I uh, think it's
0: yeah. It's reasonably significant.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, you can take that away as a lesson if you want to. I mean I think it's it's not it's not
0: nothing that like you know the CRA was able to get 2000 dollars checks out to people but like 500 uh, in a pretty pretty quick turnaround I mean with it, a
1: new with a new legislative framework no less It wasn't it wasn't like you can compare to sort of administrative state failures in the United States but like yes look at the this I'm trying to remember how people are pronouncing it the SuS or whatever it is the CWS right yes. That is opening up, or open up this week, if I'm not mistaken.
0: The application's open this morning, yeah. Yeah.
1: So We were recording Monday evening. No cash people. in hand for anyone yet. Application's no. open. The government will be evaluating them over the next yeah, and they, week or two. They say
0: they'll say they have approvals. First approval's in on the 5th, which is next Tuesday. And first money
1: in to people's bank accounts on the 7th, which is next Thursday. <laughs> And what's opening up in Quebec in that sort of time window? Uh, oh, like businesses wise. Well, I'm I'm hinting just point blank at the fact that we now have provinces looking at opening back yeah. up and laying yeah. out their plans for opening back up and taking first steps towards opening back yeah. up. I mean, look, and I will be the, the first person to is say in that hand yet for any of yeah, these I mean... businesses.
0: And Etienne, I'll be the first person to say that, like, having known about a, a novel virus, uh, you know, maybe the government should have started planning about, like, hey, what if we have to close things down? Are we need income support measures? Let's get that planned out. Let's talk to people, blah, blah, blah. And let's have that in place for, like, you know, when this starts rather than six weeks into it. I completely sympathize with that. But I don't think that's to be laid at the hands or feet, rather, of, the public service and the administrative state and administrative capacity. I think it's just like the political timelines were later than they
1: should have been. So a a bit of a, a bit of a bridge, um, but not intentionally. One of the things that strikes me about sort of the Canadian system or the Canadian policy discourse, let's say recently is in the United States, since the great recession, there have been various policy pieces talking about, um, God, there's a better term for this, but automatically triggered benefits. That, uh, automatic stabilizers. Automatic stabilizers, fiscal stabilizers. Yeah, Claudia, Sam. That come into effect when, you know, X threshold is met and they come into effect automatically. Yeah. And there exists the framework for them to get money out the door immediately. Yes. I don't know that we've had a comparable discourse in Canada about anything nor like have this. We,
0: nor have we needed to, to a large extent, right? Because the reality of the American system is they have three very hard veto points in their constitutional framework. Sure. Uh, And that was the thing that hobbled the 2008 or post 2008 recovery was that the Democrats wanted. Well, okay. I I should be a little less generous here. Some Democrats wanted a more generous uh, recovery package and all Republicans didn't, um, which led to, you know, hard V like the house voted down the 2000, the the first sort of big uh, tarp, Relief when George Bush is still president, mm-hmm. uh, and then of course they they didn't play ball with uh, with Obama for years. Uh, of course, Obama, you know, intentionally hamstrung his own recovery by listening to idiots like Larry Summers. But there you go. <laughs> uh, but in in Canada, we just don't have these problems, right? Like it just you we almost always have a majority government, uh, and if you don't, you can find a dance partner and stuff goes through the house, right? It's just it's not as complicated to get. To keep the lights on in Canada as it is in the US because we didn't make silly mistakes in designing a system of government.
1: See, but okay, so I agree with you on the political side of this, yes. But I think that's the critical thing. But half of it is sort of the machinery of government side of things. Like on our side, yeah, and I agree with you on this, right? This is exactly what I meant. yeah there was no back-end machinery in place but the ei yeah, system was being that. run by little gremlin humanoids and we had to go <laughs> through the cra
0: Pop- popular position over <laughs> at ESDC, i'm sure
1: no that, that was in reference to the coding language not the not the actual oh, public servants the kobold. COBOL.
0: COBOL. okay first of all kobolds are, are draconids they're not uh they're not goblinoids <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get this through your head. My, man. Mine was sick. Yeah. Um. No, but I, I agree with you, right? Like, like I said earlier, like I think, you know, in an ideal world, you start looking at a, a novel coronavirus in China. You think, okay. Realistically, let's think about like what happens if this comes to Canada in any big way. Okay, we're gonna need income support because we're gonna have to close things down. What does that look like? Let's get the blueprints out the door, and then we can kind of like get things ready to go before this actually becomes a big problem. I I, I said that not five minutes ago. Uh, so I completely agree on that score. But I don't think that it's... It, I, I just don't think that we have as much of a need for the automatic stabilizers thing. I just think we need to have, like... Like, I think it would have been good to have the income measures in place. But I just don't think there's been as much of a need for it because we don't have the sort of systemic
1: political dysfunction that the U.S. has. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you on the political side. Um, I, I mean, I think we're largely in agreement. Look, yeah, um, like I, I have no objection to setting up systems to get
0: like, like I've said many times during this crisis, I don't think on the show, but like I think a good administrative stress test to run every once in a while for, for any government is how fast can we get a checkout to X many thousand people? right? Like I think that that's a good exercise
1: to run every now and then. Just to know that you can do it. Yeah, I think obviously post that will be one of the lessons taken away post COVID. Yeah, um, is perhaps keeping more people's direct deposit numbers on file with. the uh, <laughs> Well, I, and the funny thing, the right, is that
0: like there have been attempts at doing this before, and they usually founder on privacy grounds. Which, as someone who you know is concerned about privacy, I, I get right. I think there have been reasonable suspicions in the past of sort of like new Ottawa super databases of everyone's financial information. But, like, this is the other side of that, is that, like, they, they can come in handy when you need them.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, where do you want to move to next?
0: Well, I see next on our list is the WHO.
1: The WHO, the WHO, if you will. WHO, WHO. Um, you so. can say that I won't get fooled again. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I'm dying over here now. Yeah, evidently, <laughs> all, all that peasant labor in the field is just <laughs>
1: destroying you. Very, serfdom is very bad for your health. So I mean, the WHO, the WHO. Where, where to begin? Um, my biggest takeaway. So let, let's, as a starting point, let's acknowledge the broader ongoing conversation in which our the conversation, in the room, if you will, plays. Uh, should should recognize. Um, there are obviously various conspiracy theories floating with the WHO, the defund the WHO, let's cut funding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my, none of my criticisms with the WHO go remotely that far. I think, uh, it is a good organization to have. It fills a gap in the international, um, let's say international system in terms of health, uh, information that is can be invaluable in cases of pandemics um in including covid all of that being said i think the disconnect for me is where um the canadian government interfaces with the who and what is taken away from those exchanges i was Do you want to elaborate on that you sort of left a pregnant pause <laughs> very good carry on no i was just breathing um I struggle to so watching the federal government and uh, by extension uh, well not by extension, the public health agency of Canada and how often they are they defer to WHO guidance, right? Mm-hmm. The WHO says this, the WHO says masks aren't good, the WHO has said and that is sort of the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it strikes me how much more often that happens with the WHO in particular than any other sort of international organization. Like, sure. the Department of Global Affairs does not name drop the United Nations like 15 to 20 times a press conference as reasons they can't do things. If you like, let them, they would, let's be real. <laughs> that's probably no, but I, true, I, I, yes. I genuinely think that that's a
0: real factor though, right? Because I think we recognize with international affairs, like politicians recognize that like, Okay, there's room for politics here, right? Like that—that that these are essentially political decisions that are being made at a political level, and the—you the, know—the crats may have their opinions, and they do, but you know, you, you were elected. I think on public health, there's not as much of a um, self-confidence on the part of politicians. I think for largely good reasons, uh, but they're much more inclined to defer to their expert public servants who say that, Hey, this is kind of usually the gold standard and this is what we usually do. And in a crisis when, you know, people are are dying of a, as to here for, you know, unseen, uh, novel virus, you say, yeah, okay, well, you know what guys, you know what you're doing? Uh, go ahead. So I, and do I think that the deference was perhaps, perhaps excessive, uh, were they perhaps asking the aggressive kinds of questions that they needed to be asking?
1: Perhaps not,
0: but I totally see why that didn't happen.
1: Like, there is a long conversation to be had one day about, you know, the Chinese influence in the WHO, etc., etc., etc. Fundamentally, all of these international organizations have more or less the same weaknesses. Yes. Yeah. They are creatures of um, many countries.
0: Yeah, And And they are independent
1: of none of them, and they rely on all of them for their funding and for their information and for cooperation and and for guidance. And and
0: I think on the the Chinese influence on the WHO thing is like, God, imagine if institutions like the IMF or the World Bank were totally beholden to the U.S. and imposed policy preferences at (laughs) odds with the evidence on countries that were, you know, going to be destroyed by them. Yeah, that'd be a real tragic scenario. Good thing that's never happened.
1: (gasps) I'm not sure that's the point to take away from this.
0: I think it's, you know, just be skeptical of imperial powers, whatever they, whatever sort of mask they end up wearing.
1: I just, yeah, let's, veering away from the imperial powers and back to the Canadian example at hand. uh, I think just, it always strikes me when I sort of think back over the past two months, and how virtually nothing was done public facing in Canada until... Uh, March 9th <laughs> Was that the day? The Thursday yeah, that Justin Trudeau's really. wife was announced March 12th COVID. I suppose Yes. Um, literally nothing was done No like we we, went, we all went to work that week To alert the Canadian public Like
0: Yeah we all went to work that week Being like huh yeah okay this is a work week And then we went home that weekend being like Yeah I guess we're not going to leave the house for the next While here yeah. <sighs> yeah it was kind of kind of crazy how
1: quickly that Sort of reality took shape yeah, and, and the entire build-up was the Canadian administrative state leaning on the WHO's guidance. And, yeah, the WHO did do th- some things right, um, by all means. Like, they declared it a pandemic and an international yeah. health emergency and all these other things. Um, but in Canada, it just never amounted to actually doing anything for whatever reason. <laughs> Yeah,
0: and I think, like, there was an article today about how the WHO said something about uh, immunities and how that they, um, there's no evidence that, like, they, they there are immunities from antibodies from having COVID-19 before. And I think people were like, oh, okay, what they're saying is that there's no, like, super rigorously tested whatever that says this. And it's like, yes, but I that's true and fair, whatever. But, like... I think the standard should have been a bit lower on evidence, right? Like, throughout this crisis, when, for instance, we said, like, oh, there's no proof that there's asymptomatic transmission. It's like, well, okay, there may not be, like, gold standard peer-reviewed blah, blah, blah. But it's like, with the case of a novel virus that is quickly spreading, maybe you act as if the worst were true. 100%. Like, it just seems like you probably want to be more aggressive than the evidence, at least in early stages, when you don't know much, rather than, oh, well, we don't have gold standard proof that this is the case, so you don't, like, don't take these precautions. Like, the mask thing, I think, is, like, really the most concrete uh, representation of this, is that, like, oh, well, it doesn't actually protect you. It's like, well, it protects you from spreading it, which actually brings down (laughs) the rate of transmission, But they were so married to this line for so long that, like, yeah, like, that was probably, in the end, counterproductive. And if they, you know, and people say, oh, they did this because they didn't want people to, like, start hoarding and jeopardizing supply, like, okay, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. But at the same time, it's like, is it the public health agency's job to tell people well-intentioned falsehoods, right? I don't think it is. I think it's the government's job to say, like, look, like here's the situation like yes it couldn't prevent spread but at the same time like we need these for healthcare workers like please be responsible i don't know i just think that the the public health agency put itself into a bit of an awkward position with this and other things
1: i mean 100 percent. the and there are numerous examples of this um the two you've cited there are really good because we had canadian public health officials testifying before a house of commons committee saying that asymptomatic spread wasn't a thing basically um, and it very clearly had been. I mean, it had been reported. But you're right. Like the gold standard, uh, this of science, big ass science, takes a long time, and is not conducive to responding to um, emerging threats. Emerging threats in a short window. We were never going to have the Lancet peer-reviewed study yeah. that was going to tip people over and say yes yeah. now masks are endorsed by the WHO, hack etc right so yeah and
0: i think to be to be fair like i think public health agencies sticking to the science is not a bad thing but i think the political side of the government needs to be thinking hard about like okay but like asking the right questions about like okay so you say that this isn't proven but like would it be best to act prudently right yes. like i think those questions Maybe it didn't get asked.
1: I, yeah, and fundamentally, this is the other side of it. I think, like, this government loves to say evidence-based policy, evidence-based decision making. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as soon as this started to happen, as soon as the pandemic, they said, you know, we are only following the um, advice of public health officials. It's all public health officials' recommendations. Public health officials that. Have public health officials that. Have. And it's really a way of shirking responsibility for decision making that even during a pandemic, especially during a pandemic, all decision making is political. Um, And most people don't understand that or a lot of people don't understand that. They don't understand how decision making can be political, even when you're Mm -hmm. listening to public health officials. Yes. What you take for granted what you like we're not talking about like the allocation of mass to hospitals because fundamentally that's in the minority of decision making but yeah. sort of the big picture decision making the policy questions right rather all, than the administrative yeah, questions 100 percent. all of the policy questions are fundamentally political and they have trade-offs because you know there are winners and losers in every single public policy conversation the economy public health who within the economy is going to be hurt? Who within public health is going to be hurt? Whether or not seniors centers are going to get PPE, all of these things. There's a million questions to consider and shirking all that responsi- responsibility by saying, we're just listening to public health officials, frankly, undermines sort of our system of government because yeah. public health officials are not accountable to voters. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the decision not to make a decision or to defer everything to the public health officials what ultimately i guess ministers are to be held accountable for yeah
0: well and i think there's also the sense that like frankly like this is zooming out a bit like governments really in the last long time haven't really had to do anything the only exception really being the 2008 crisis and even then the central banks ended up really handling most of the heavy lifting on that right like and, heavy, and the central banks have done a lot here too, but at the same time, this was actually a crisis that required more of a human face than the financial crisis did in a lot of ways. So this is actually the first time a lot of people have actually had to govern um, in a very real sense. And I mean, you look at Doug Ford go up to his press conferences and he looks terrified because I think for him, it was all going to be ribbon cutting at, at Ford dealerships, so to speak. <laughs> and... Uh, like he didn't really expect to have to uh, To do this like it's just This is not really what he signed up to do And uh, so um, I, he's not I, I, I'm a little mean to Doug Ford here but I th- Just because he's so dear In the headlights when he, he goes up and has to do this But like this uh, is the reality For most of like western Democracies is that functionally They've been places Run by their civil services To a large extent and central banks Etc and that they don't
1: really have these muscles of actually having to govern very well stretched out a fun thought experiment to play during this if, if anyone still finds themselves disagreeing with me um and saying like no i mean we should always just trust the best best advice of public health officials during this time is to think of a different policy uh, of the policy areas where you fundamentally do not think that is the case like you're like, let's let's play this out you know during a pandemic it's a matter of life and death okay policing policy can be a matter of life and death um, foreign policy can be a matter of life and death uh, economists who run or who work at finance make our know, well-versed experts <laughs> a telling
0: slip you could say <laughs>
1: um, but the Minister of Finance does not re- lean on them exclusively and say you know economists made all of our decisions there is not a department in government that is not important, um, but at which the minister and ministers historically say, no, I deferred to my public servants for every decision I had to make. And that's sort of what we find ourselves in during this time. And it's a really good question to ask, why is this different? And the answer is it's not. It's not fundamentally unique. Um, it's not any different than running i mean the stakes are high um, yeah but the stakes of running an economy are high the stakes of running the federal police force are high the stakes of running prisons are high. well at, at, like, tragically
0: as yeah like tragically as we found out in nova scotia like policing mistakes can you know if they happen uh we don't really know what happened there but like they can be very very bad uh and yeah like i think there will be some sort of uh getting to the bottom of what happened there but like everything fundamentally is life or death when you're talking about a whole country and about decisions that affect millions of people.
1: Yeah, there is there is not a department in government that does, does not make important uh, decisions every single day. Yes. And all of them lean on their public servants to provide them advice, to guide their decision-making, to inform their decision-making, but fundamentally they do not say, well, yeah, They do not, yeah, give them the, the decision-making the, power. The, the public servants told me this is what I should do. Which is what we find ourselves in in this situation. It's a crutch yes. the government is happy to lean on.
0: Yeah, as they have been on on lots of other files in the past. Um, but yeah, and, and look, like I I understand to some degree that people are very deferential to public health authorities for very good reasons. Uh, they are smart people who know what they're doing. But yeah, like I, it does strike me that it seems like the good questions that should have been asked weren't asked early enough, and that they're still kind of uh, leaning on. Really other people to make their decisions for them which uh is not really a recipe for uh well it's it's a little discouraging when i you know if you're if you're a small d democrat it's not an edifying spectacle right like it's very much a, the post democracy phenomenon where we have a very very stage managed and limited range of democratic decision making and the rest is really not up to people
1: who are up for election the the irony on all of this uh, uh is that Where the government, and this is more bridging to the communications, um, should be leaning more on the civil servants, frankly, is in terms of the technical briefing. So every day the Prime Ministers come on at 11.15 or 11.30, depending on the day. 11.15. Well, he's late often. Um, (laughs) He's rarely 11.15 late these (laughs) days, to be be fair. um, But... So he does sort of the rah-rah press conference, makes the announcement if there's an announcement to make. And then the media is given a lineup of officials, which is also broadcast live. Or oh, Sorry, not of officials. Of, uh, yes. There are two officials. Two officials, but primarily cabinet ministers. The cabinet yes. ministers typically outnumber the officials. Almost always. Um, and it, it sort of makes for an interesting Actually, dynamic. Always. Not, not, not almost always. Always. Because you have Christia Freeland put in the position of... Doing basically a technical explainer on, you know, whatever policy of the day is being announced, which she is not the best place person in government to do this at all. It's it's actually somewhat of a bewildering communications decision. And it's been observed that often the ministers, or not often, but on occasion the ministers have... They've, they've flubbed m- things, yeah. ...misspoken, flubbed, misunderstood, take your pick. And it's, why are officials not put up? Why is it not a proper technical briefing instead of this, like... Split officials ministerial briefing, where the minister explaining it isn't even necessarily the minister of the portfolio. Uh, Note the absence of CRA minister, Um, (laughs) or or the public safety minister, or you know many of the well, yeah, and his
0: his absence has actually been especially galling because there was the first uh, COVID nineteen death in a federal correctional institution uh, last week, and the next day. The public safety minister was not there to talk about it.
1: Nope. So you which have, is incredible, so you and, have and of course, as Christia I alluded Freeland to, there was yeah fielding questions for the public safety portfolio, as well as for CRA and all of these. And it's just like, why? Why not just put up the associate deputy minister for XYZ? Who, who or you can go even lower, go to the DG level. I don't care. Um, people who are closer to these files were able to explain them more concisely than the political level because we've already had the political briefing 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Briefing, such as it is. It's
0: Yeah. Like the, or the, yeah. the PM's <laughs> presentation in Q&A. Yes, I think that that's that's probably a more, more accurate way to put it. Um, yeah, so do you want to talk about the uh, the next item on the agenda here?
1: So this one's just sort of... This is a Twitter beef, really, more than Posthumously anything. hilarious. Um... Because in the... I, I know this was one thing that you, um, early on in this entire thing, gravitated towards was the rent issue, right? Um, yes. What about rent? How are people expected to pay rent? The first of the month was at that point coming up, April 1st. How are people going to pay rent? And if you tweet and we've it, got May 1st coming up in a couple days, for that matter. We do. And if you tweet anything about this, um, there was no shortage of people who jump on you and say, ha ha ha. Ah ha ha ha. Guess what? That is provincial jurisdiction. It's like, okay, thank you very much. It, it is very very Yu-Gi-Oh trap card kind of 100%. Uh, the people who've skimmed the constitutional jurisdiction section um love to flaunt it in the face of people. Yeah. Um as if they're revealing the world's deepest darkest hidden information. aha uh, you, you you can't challenge this. It is provincial jurisdiction. Um, where fundamentally the reality in in life is a lot hazier than that like the government did not Develop the number of dollars that they were going to give people without a consideration of rent and other bills in mind. The federal government mm-hmm. does not just consider federally regulated industries when it considers what supports. Yes. It's like, well, it's their telecom bill and <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, credit card fees are going to be about uh, this much, so we'll give them $300 a month, and that should about be it. Yeah. Groceries are
1: not my fucking problem. The, the, the reality in Canada is that the provincial governments don't actually have that much fiscal capacity. And no, they
0: have dog shit fiscal capacity. And we're seeing that New Newfoundland went bankrupt like a month ago. And <laughs> just no one fucking noticed.
1: And we're seeing that that's not even, That's not even a joke. <laughs> and so the federal government was giving people money basically to pay rent. Um, but I think a lot of people would say it wasn't enough money. Um, and then... Meanwhile, an army of stakeholders for representing basically every business in Canada said, what about our fixed costs? What about our commercial rent? And the federal government said, okay, you're right. Let's do some supports. And their initial support included a uh, a loan. With a, non-ref- not non-refundable, but with a, a grant portion, a- an eligible yeah, grant 10 th- portion. Yeah,
0: 10000 of the 40000 was forgivable which a uh, uh, Canada for- forgivable. Emergency Business
1: Account, yes. Which, of course, the SiBA uh, which, of course, you know, likely they'd intended a lot of that to be used for rent, but it turns out that wasn't enough either. And no so, idea. in negotiation with the province, the negotiation with the province here, it should be noted, is very liberal, or is a very... Uh, lenient use of the term negotiation i mean
0: ottawa is holding the hammer here for the first time in a couple generations
1: not only that ottawa basically offered to pick up the tab for most of rent yeah like it's 50 percent ottawa 25 percent provincial is that am i right is that the bargain that was struck i
0: am actually i'm my memory's a little hazy on this it may be that they are split evenly like 37.5 37.5 and then the landowner picks up the 25 Oh, but I, I don't remember precisely enough but at yeah. any rate let's just say that it, it was a a deal made on fairly advantageous terms for something that was ostensibly provincial jurisdiction for yes. provinces
1: like so the feds basically went to the provinces and said yeah we're willing to ante up for this we recognize the problem we recognize you know fiscal capacity um can we all agree how much we're going to pay and basically all the provinces said hells yeah and then a deal was struck and announced and is coming into effect. And it's like, yes. Oh, the feds had a substantial role in coordinating a a whole of government, uh, federal, but provincial, th- territorial. Th- this isn't even the best part, though. this isn't even the best part because in a provincial th- the jurisdiction. Part. My my.
0: The best part is then you say like, okay, but you, you tell the same the same people, okay, but they just did this, and then they're like, yes. But that was negotiated And it's like you what? like Yeah of course it fucking was and, and there was
1: literally I literally saw a tweet From a Press Gallery journalist That was uh, someone talking about Like okay now do uh, Tenant rent and it was like, "Yeah, that's jurisdiction of the provinces." Like, what "Are you fucking?" It's like, "Yeah, me? but so is this, motherfucker." <laughs> what? <laughs> what? are you talking about? Like, yeah, it's just the federal government can go hand in hand to any province, and say, "Would you like us to pay for an area of provincial jurisdiction?" And the province yes. will say, "Yes, can we co-brand the announcement with you?" And the federal yeah. government will say, "Yes, yeah, done. Like, absolutely done. Yeah, pre- and, pretty good deal for the provinces, and no one is going to complain. Like, it's just." It's absolutely ludicrous. Like, healthcare is essentially an area of provincial jurisdiction, but the federal government picks up the tab on, you know, a huge amount of it. Yes. Yes. It's just bewildering... Smaller,
0: th- smaller, in fact, than the, the amount they had agreed to front uh,
1: when the thing was negotiated. You're talking about the complaint of, what was it, 50 and now to 30? Um, I mean, that's a
0: reasonably significant complaint. <laughs>
1: yes, but healthcare has inflated dramatically in terms of what it costs and has become... Yes. You know, it's no longer bandages and alcohol yes, to slap on a mri machines um and precision medicine um so all, all of that is to say and don't don't get me wrong this is not to forgive every ndp platform ever who has largely dabbled only in provincial jurisdiction federal leadership baby <laughs> 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 where, where at times it seems they're running more of a provincial party than a federal party Um, And I understand why they do that, because provincial issues are actually much more compelling and um, of importance to individual Canadians than federal issues often are. Um, But at the end of the day, there's a lot of room for the federal government to play in areas of provincial jurisdiction, particularly when they're asking, who do I make this check out to?
0: Yes, and well, even then, actually, they often have trouble because the provinces in in good times will say, like, actually, you can't give me less than what you're giving to anybody (laughs) else, Uh, which, like, fair enough, like, as a negotiating position, I I get it, Uh, but it certainly leads to a lot of things foundering, Uh, but right now, the the government is the one that prints the currency, so they have a lot more fiscal capacity than everyone, and uh, yeah, like, they just, uh, they're the ones holding the hammer, and they've got a lot more... Leverage than they've ever had uh, in anybody that I can think of's lifetime, so they should make use of it. Is my position.
1: Yeah, when you when you look across, um, I'm I'm going to guess a little bit here, but I, I've been following provincial and federal announcements fairly closely, um, and when you look at the amount the provinces are spending to respond to coronavirus, it is not remotely as much. Um, no, like it, I haven't no, seen this yeah, it's, it's in any definitive yes. way, but I would say it is not remotely as much as the federal government is spending. The federal government is at like ten percent of GDP, yeah. And the coronavirus packages in various provinces are somewhere in the magnitude of Ontario is like five, five billion? Five, maybe f- as high as fifteen in Ontario. Um, but in some provinces, they're like a billion or two dollars. Like they're not they're not a tremendous amount yet. And that is in part because the federal government is stepping up and paying the tab for a lot of these things.
0: Yeah. As they should be, right. Cause they have the capacity and the provinces don't. It makes total sense, but yeah, it's just the reality of what that means for federal provincial relations and fiscal federalism, I think is uh, going to be a live discussion.
1: Agreed. Um, so we've, I mean, we sort of alluded to it earlier. Um, the, We've seen a number of uh, back-to-business, let's call them plans, um, from the provinces. Um, Ontario announced theirs today. Uh, Dougie had a press conference at 1.30. Um, Quebec announced theirs today as well, I believe, shortly before. S- yep. Saskatchewan did theirs last week, and New Brunswick did theirs last week as well. So we have four provinces coming to the table with reopening plans that all constitute between one and three different phases. Do you know what? all those provinces have? Or oh, sorry, one and three, uh, three and five different phases. What I meant to say. Go ahead. I've lived in all of them. Boom, got them. Have you? Which uh, are Saskatchewan, Ontario, and Quebec? Yep. Which reopening plan would you uh, would you like to start with, or would you rate as the best?
0: I would rate New Brunswick's as the funniest. Why is that? Because the the two bubble, the two family bubble rule has <laughs> prompted uh, uh, basically a a small civil war in New Brunswick <laughs> as people try to figure out exactly what that means.
1: I mean, its its definition is pretty clear. You get to hang out with one other family exclusively.
0: Ah, but the definition of family here, I think, is is where people are getting tripped up.
1: But it's like people at your address that you would consider to be self-isolating with to begin with. You know,
0: Etan, I don't really disagree with you. I I think it's not that hard to figure out, but it seems to be quite
1: a topic of live
0: discussion, so. So, that... I just call them how I see them, man.
1: (laughs) So, the New Brunswick plan, if I'm not mistaken, has, I think, four phases, um, which are color-coded from red to... I don't know if they ever said what the third one is. Red to something to orange. No, red to orange to something <laughs> to green. Maybe yellow. Maybe yellow is the color I'm
0: missing. That that, that would make sense. Yes, uh, that would sort of that would sort of follow <laughs> to purple. Actually,
1: um, was there phased reopening? It, the initial stages of it were centered around one this sort of two family bubble as you as you described as well as getting people outdoors was sort of the other key component of it. Um, Saskatchewan had the first one that was unveiled. It's not, yes. It's also the one I'm the least familiar with. Um, Quebec's made headlines today for including reopening elementary schools, like, next yeah, week. Yeah, which, yeah. Was it? It was early mid-May. I can't remember if it was the first week or the second week of May. Um, which Quebec being one of the hardest hit provinces.
0: Well, it's so largely because Quebec as a province, yes, is hit hard. But the reality is that like the vast majority of that is Montreal.
1: Yes. Uh, the
0: other and the rest of the province is fairly in line with the national average
1: the other explanation i've heard for why quebec was sort of disproportionately hit was because they had spring break they have spring break a week before the rest of (laughs) they did yes
0: which yeah and and a week is a is a lot of time in in these situations uh, it was a lot
1: of time in this situation 24 hours was a lot of time in this uh when this was all going down um but the fact that people had traveled all out of the province and were all returning from you know florida Everywhere, probably a lot of Florida. Um, Yes, there there was quite a bit of that. Led to a lot of people importing cases to the province. Yeah, Um, but notable, Lego is sitting at like ninety nine point nine 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 percent approval rate. Yeah,
0: like North Korean level, though I suppose (laughs) who knows what that means right now.
1: Has anyone seen Lego lately? Has he has he been confirmed? Yeah, his train has been spotted. (laughs) Um. So, yeah, I guess ugh, hold your breath for Quebec, as they seem to be the first province that is going to Actually, take... you should
0: probably keep breathing. I just want to so Substantial
1: steps to reopen. Saskatchewan seems to have one of the most definitive plans. You know, golf is early on in their reopening plan. Ontario's announcement today was sort of what I expected. Um, and it's sort of what I expected for most of the It was, it the was nothing? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that here are the stages... Um, these are dependent on like this, this is what I like to see. I like to see the criteria for moving to the next stage. The New Brunswick plan laid this out very clearly. I can't remember the number exactly. It was something like if we get four cases in six days, then we are snapping back to the previous step. Yeah. And so there's a very clear plan for like how we get out of this step, how we move past And they've had no cases for a while and this allowed them sort of take steps forward quebec still having lots of cases a little bit of a different story ontario we're like okay here's our plan here are what the phases are going to look like we don't have a timeline for any of the plan this is just notionally what the steps are we'll get there when we get there and when we get to that step we're going to take our sweet time and uh, make sure that everything is safe before we move on which is you know good what we mm-hmm. haven't seen in this space is a lot of federal leadership. Yes. I've sort of been wondering whether or not the federal government would put out a guidance document, like, ostensibly, and I think they've uh, mentioned this during press conferences, that they're consulting with the provinces on what yeah, the looks like. And I, fundamentally, you know, the federal government didn't use the Emergencies Act, um, so the ball is entirely in the province's courts, like, jurisdiction-wise. But that's never stopped the federal government of saying, you know, we have the Public Health Agency of Canada and access to the WHO. And here is what we would suggest as the template for provincial reopenings. I will will sort
0: of give them some... I, I, I think putting out a hypothetical national sort of set of guidelines, which really wouldn't impact anybody except for the average Canadian who is not, like, a real person in a real sense, if you know what I mean, like... Sure. The 2.3... then provinces would be asked, why aren't you following the federal guideline? Well, the federal guideline doesn't actually apply to real people. It's just sort of a statistical average. And then it'd be like, well, so what was the point of... Do-? Like, it would just confuse people. So I sort of see that. Like, I kind of get why they, they didn't go that direction. It, it makes sense to me, but... I I, 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 somewhat, I think they should have been a little clearer about that a little earlier on, but... I somewhat At that point, is quibbling.
1: Like... Let me use the example of the essential uh, businesses, right? All the provinces wrote up... I mean, not all the provinces, not all of them did do delineated or, yeah, delineated lists of essential businesses. But, like, Mm -hmm. once most of the provinces had done theirs and were shut down, the federal government came out with their list of essential businesses, and it was like, and this was guidance for the provinces, and it was like, guys, you you absolutely missed the boat on this. Like, absolutely mangled it. And, like... Not a bad thing to have this because, you know, there are areas like, say, Ottawa, where interprovincial or you have an interprovincial population that travels fluidly between the two of them. So if you close down one thing in one, you trigger a migration to the other province in order to get, you know, be it beer or whatever from Canadian Tire. Um so I think there's room here and a lot of the expertise in Canada is within the federal government space. Yes, and I th- but I think and that that's the there's a benefit to provided. coordinating amongst all the provinces. And yeah. right now we're seeing a patchwork of all the provinces coming up with a three-step plan, a two-step plan, a one-step plan, a five-step plan, a four-step plan, mm-hmm. and it's like uh, you know, some consistency would be good. The Saskatchewan plan puts Childcare way at the bottom of things, and that's yeah. going to make huge issues. Like they're just, it is such a patchwork, and I think it's going yeah. to be well. And, and look, I hear. I think this, not, not to say these provinces where... can't do the steps by themselves, but just yeah. having consistency across the plans fundamentally, like. At the end of the day, this is like a one size fits all thing, right? Like yes, there but essential be a businesses best way to open up a province for business again.
0: <laughs> essential businesses, I think, clearly have been an area where provincial politics have played a very big role, right? Like I think that that's no question. Like the, the role of residential construction in Ontario, where of course Ontario real estate big part driving part of the industry, in sort of various you know resource dependent provinces or, or provinces with the big resource economies. Uh, like pipeline construction, et cetera, has continued. Like that's, was that probably the best decision for the purpose of social distancing? Like probably not, but they happened anyway because the province thought we can't actually afford to let that stop for whatever reason. So I think there was probably a lot of political pressure on the federal government not to put out an ideal list and probably the same thing happened with on on this side, on the reopening side, because provinces are going to have to, you know, well, are going to don't necessarily have to, but they're going to play some form of politics with reopening, uh, in how whatever form that looks like. So I perse like this is me theorizing, but I suspect that the federal government was probably leaned on quite heavily to not put out uh, guidance in in a public format. Uh,
1: very very possible because it
0: create it creates awkwardness for the provinces, right? As oh, it I does. outlined earlier, with like why does your guidance differ from what the, f- the federal government says. That that's what you'd be looking at everywhere, and it would be awkward for all of them for various reasons.
1: Yeah, and I mean, perhaps that's why I'm an advocate of it is because I don't mind. In this case. <laughs> you want to create you want to create problems for them. I don't mind in this case them imposing some awkwardness and sort of it doesn't have to be as prescriptive as the provincial plans, but sort of you know putting out a consistent set of metrics that one should achieve that provinces should be looking for in order to say mission accomplished in these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, because having you know, a dozen different gu- uh, guidelines, I think, causes its own type of confusion. But
0: sure, really no, I, I don't disagree. But like, you have to think: seeing like a state here, right? Is that you're thinking from the perspective of the authorities that are dealing with this? They're going to want what's simplest for them,
1: uh, uh, not necessarily course, what's best for their citizens. Which, of course, is to yeah which of course is to have your own plan and to not have to, to control the narrative etc not so. have to answer to anyone else but to a certain extent that's already happening because if you watch any of the provincial pressers basically the premiers are getting grilled on why is this different than saskatchewan's plan why yeah. doesn't manitoba have their plan out yet when saskatchewan has their plan out when is the manitoba plan going to come out because the saskatchewan one was out last week like yeah it's it still yeah happens. but why would,
0: why would they want more problems <laughs> right like it's it's a simple calculation for them, so there you go anyways there's there's both sides of that do we, both sides uh, the the driving force of, of human civilization <laughs> do we, do we want to call it there for uh, for the the day
1: yeah, we can call it there um, That's an hour it is an hour um let me just know one thing that's going on that perhaps you know is is close to home for me or yeah once, once upon a time was home for me um. Man, Fort McMurray is getting absolutely devastated by flooding right now. Um, maybe I missed it, but I know a lot of provinces were on flood watch this year. Uh, Ottawa was on flood watch for a little bit. Manitoba I mean, the spring, was the
0: annual unforeseen spring
1: flooding, as our as our friend Paul Wilson has called it in the past. Um, but I haven't noticed any substantial flooding anywhere in Canada. So far, there's been some light flooding. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's you know this happens in small communities across Canada. Maybe there's somewhere I'm missing. But Fort McMurray has had like an ice jam back up against the bridge and it is just devastating that town.
0: Yeah, it looked bad. I saw a couple pictures today. It looked like basically they hit the iceberg.
1: Yeah, and they've asked for military assistance. So it's it sort of just brings up the um, there will be multiple crises simultaneously ongoing like social distance I mean, we,
0: we have literally had nothing but this year if you're the federal government right because we went straight from uh the Ukrainian airlines flight to the uh the sort of uh railway disruption yes and then into this like <laughs> and then we're gonna go into flood season and then we're gonna go into fire season and then uh yeah let's let's just
1: spare the left and then construction of pipelines that may or may not be controversial. Um, yes. This, just to... Just well, I mean,
0: pipelines for, like, for, for what? Like, a commodity worth less than nothing? <laughs> <laughs> like...
1: <laughs> Short short term. And short that's gonna term, that's yes. gonna put a crimp in things. I think we'll, we'll see. Be a little different in the longer term. That
0: that is a f- future episode topic. But uh, yes, we are we are not blind to the the fact that Canada's uh, one of the well, I think Canada's largest export commodity uh, recently dipped into negative prices. Uh, there was of course the much publicized WTI hitting minus forty, but Canadian uh, select Western Canada select hit like negative two. Is that right mm. I expect you to know this again you're from Alberta
1: was it WTI? yes you know
0: I'm... WTI is the Texas price but uh, yeah Western Canada select is the the Canadian price because of our our evil government that doesn't uh, that landlocks all the oil
1: well it that's not why anyways I, I don't want to get into oil <laughs> into the oil pricing <laughs> conversation.
0: I've been told that's why. So. No, no, but that's by not Jason, why by Kenny. That's
1: not why the price is different. It's because of how sour the oil is and the different. Wait, in are quality you saying the that there?
0: It's not just all Justin Trudeau's fault.
1: I mean, that's a, that's a good part of it. Oh, no, wait. Yeah. I, before before we go complete off track, I had one final point I wanted to make um, in response to your. It's been a crisis basically since the year started. Yes, which is why it would have been good to have had a government, perhaps, at the earliest available have No disagreement for me on that score. Rather than at one's leisure after waking up, having a coffee, having their pancakes and the waffles, and then maybe getting around to appointing ministers and chiefs of staff. That's a uh, pretty carb-heavy morning. That, that's a point I've made several times in the past, but I, I think it bears repeating that this government No, absolutely. Sort of like they, 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 sort of spent as they had two all the months. time in the world.
0: Yeah, they spent two months doing literally nothing. So,
1: and it turns out, you know, the world is a big. place. They could have used the time. <laughs> and even if your like domestic political calendar has nothing going on it, things things come up. The world is a big place. It
0: is all right. Uh, yeah, I think that'll do it for us today. Do you have any uh, any beer reviews? Uh,
1: I just finished my last faced in maple. Um, which you've had before it is an imperial I have. stout, uh, maple imperial stout from Lawson's Finest Liquids, uh, who are a Vermont-based brewery um, just outside of Stowe in Waitsfield, and they're a phenomenal brewery, and they have a, just a gorgeous location in sort of the. Yeah,
0: it's a really nice brewery. They're yeah. not really that close to Stowe, are they? They're more they're closer to Burlington.
1: No, there. It's about equidistant, actually. I think it's closer yeah, to Stowe than true. Burlington. Yeah,
0: you have to turn off towards Warren, I believe, and then it's a little before that. Maybe,
1: It's but neither here nor there, though. G- gorgeous ski lodge esque yeah. location, great. Tour. Yeah, really nice. Fantastic beer. Um, their sip of sunshine, of course, is perhaps their most famous beer. Very good as well. Um, very very good. I got
0: I got some very good uh, wet hop beers from them last time we were there.
1: Yes, you are a wet hop boy, aren't you? When it's the season, you know you got to get them. Just you wait, my hop uh, rhizome should be here any any day now. Lovely.
0: Uh, I had a um, a beer from uh, Matron from Prince Edward County.
1: Which one, Jackie? Uh,
0: no, I actually forget what it's called. It's called Muff. It is a dark uh, lager. Yes. And it's actually really good. Uh, dark lagers, I find, often can be just, like, they sort of take the worst of, like, your world's Budweiser's and your world's Guinnesses and put them together, and it's, like, the worst parts of both and not very enjoyable. Uh, but this was actually really good, very malty and toasty, uh, without being too, too full-bodied, which is uh, kind of nice sometimes. So, yeah, very good. Highly recommend. All their beers are good, actually. So... so.
1: I have a little bit of beef with them. Like, I, I love their idea. I love their concept. They're a little bit about breaking out of sort of the constant iteration of craft brewing and sort of more doing staples. Um, so they actually don't have that interesting of a beer list. and it doesn't. No, they don't. They have, they have that their, much. their
0: janky IPA, which is very good. Uh, They have the Sayer lager Which is also quite good It's a lager I mean, it's a little pricey for a lager But if you like a a good crispy boy now and then uh, You know, it's a nice little treat I I do not uh, (laughs) I think this one is quite good as well No, I agree that it's not the most path-breaking Uh brewery and all the land but i do like their stuff and it's it's quite good and satisfying
1: no that that wasn't my beef though my beef was okay carry on the two times i've stopped in there they haven't had their janky which arguably is their flagship beer available that is too bad it's like if you're gonna do four beers like have them in stock yeah keep all four in stock regularly fair fair
0: play yeah can't can't really disagree with that any That'll, that'll do it. Anyway, thank, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will be back next time with uh, more exciting content. Um, I don't know what else to say, but thanks for listening again, and good night. That's Bye-bye. it. That's all.